APU. American Public University is proud to present The Everyday Scholar. Hello, my name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today we're talking to Robert King, Religion Faculty in the School of Arts, Humanities, and Education. Our conversation today is about teaching religion at a secular institution. Thanks for being here, Rob. Thank you very much, Jorn. It's a true honor, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Excellent. I love talking about religion. That probably sounds funny to some people, but I think it's very important for people to be able to connect or just understanding or talking about religion is an important part of the human experience, of course. And the first question is, how do educators simultaneously promote academic freedom and respect for all religions? For example, a course taught here at APUS is RELS 452 that studies new religious movements from Wicca to Scientology and even UFO cults. How do you remain objective when teaching about such new religious movements? Jordan, that's such an excellent question, especially as our society in North America, I won't just say the United States, I'll also say Canada, Mexico, begins to become much more diverse than the niche markets will then become a niche market within themselves. Just to use some marketing terminology to describe religion, you can describe religion many different ways, sociology of religions, anthropology. But in terms of pluralism, I think looking at niche marketing is a, a good helpful lens. And so as the faculty advisor for the APUS Paganism Club, we found that each group has its own distinctive beliefs. So whether it's Wicca or some of the Norse mythologies, Druids, you name it, that each group has its own very specific ideologies, beliefs, practices that, although grouped according to a sociology of religions perspective, according to new religious movements, they're not necessarily in align with each other. And although very charitable to each other, the actual belief systems are completely different. So how I remain objective, even within that niche grouping of new religious movements, much less the larger monotheistic religions, Abrahamic uh, religions, uh, that it really is a question of applying whichever academic lens one wants to apply and then staying consistent with those methodologies. So if we're doing sociology of religions, then we'll look at the sociological criteria to examine each respective movement. If we're using more of an anthropological perspective, ethnographic qualitative research, then we'll use those methodologies. And I found that especially the students who take the New Religious Movements course, either if they're exploring or if they come from, say, a Wiccan background, they end up doing much more refined research by staying very clear with their methodologies that they're using and then just essentially plugging in the subject matter that they want to study. And so that way you avoid the typical cliches, rhetoric that, oh, that group is a cult, quote unquote, but you're really looking at, okay, this is a new religious movement. These are the beliefs. This is the history. This is the history of perhaps it's a reappropriation of an earlier tradition that is thousands of years old, but it's new since, say, the 1970s or 1980s. So as long as the students are consistent in their application of whichever ancillary discipline to religious studies, whether it's sociology, anthropology, sometimes philosophy, religion as well, then the students really write incredible research papers and they really get excited about the material. So I think the best thing is just staying consistent with whichever academic discipline 
one is speaking from, and then essentially plugging in the content. And the students really uh, become much more alive in their conversation, very charitable to each other, and it avoids all the cliches and rhetoric that you hear in popular media or you know political debates, et cetera. And that is absolutely excellent. And I'm glad you talked about the rhetoric. I think oftentimes when you listen to media, media is both wonderful <laughs> and disappointing at the same time. But as a side question, can you please describe what you mean by a cult and then a new religious movement and then paganism? Because the term pagan has thrown around so much. And I think that discounts what people believed in the past, if that makes sense. That's an excellent set of questions, Jorn. Uh, I kind of had to chuckle because the original term pagan, I'll start with the oldest term, actually just referred to country dweller, say in Latin, paganas, I believe is the Latin word, that it meant any traditional belief that was still held as the Roman Empire became Christianized. So that's a very large category. It's kind of like the ancient Greeks. They'd refer to anyone who was non-Greek as barbarian. And it didn't necessarily mean anything pejorative, but it just meant that to the Greek ear, all they heard from, say, I don't know, just north of Macedonia and any other people group, Germanic groups, the, uh, I guess, Huns, which became the Magyars later, were words that sounded like bar, 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 bar. So it became barbarian, but the original term just referred to non-Greek. So in a similar way, as the Roman Empire became Christianized, pagan just essentially meant country dweller who still held to cling to the old polytheistic Roman belief system. So that's the easy answer. The other one, I would point to one particular scholar, Ernst Trelsch, who really was foundational in the beginning movement towards a typological description of religious experiences, religious movements, even prior to the founding of, say, the American Academy of Religion, I believe that was in the 1960s, and then a full-blown founding of religious studies as a separate academic discipline from theology or history, etc. And from that background, Trelsch would say, okay, you have different types that you can study. So within that typological description, one term used was sect. So what is a sect? A sect is a small group that is a splinter group, but still largely within a respective tradition. So say like the Seventh-day Adventists, that would be a sect within Protestant Christianity that goes back to a earlier millenarian you know, end of the world movement back in the 1800s. But the term cult Unfortunately, to unpack that term, it, it's really difficult because it is a political term that a lot of times popular media especially will throw around just to refer to any group with which whatever the media representative is doesn't agree with. So cult is kind of a very free-floating term. So rather than having a term that could be very pejorative because you could be you know part of that cult you know say uh, i don't know um people who are latter-day saints mormons you know sometimes they're lumped in with that or charismatic christians or you know you name it it's a pejorative term so the most recent movement has been just to group anything that's relatively new the last you know century or two i'd say the last century especially would be considered a new religious movement so it's just kind of a way to clean up the language 
using the term cult. There's an earlier Latin derivation that I won't get into about the term cult actually referred to cultus in, in Latin, but that's a whole different story. So I'm not going to get into uh, that uh, etymological discussion, but just say in terms of popular usage, it is very political and pejorative. So generally scholars will recommend using new religious movements, just anything founded within the last century. And that's excellent. And, you know, whenever I talk to people about these terms, I would generally say, please never use cult. Because just like you said, it's used however the person is using it. And typically it is negative. And a new religious movement is a much better term because, like you said, it can include anything from the last, typically last 200 years that includes LDS and also Scientologists and also Christian scientists uh, with Mary Baker Eddy. And so there's just a variety of different things. But if you say, oh, that's a cult, that's instantly, I think you think of Jonestown. And you think, what was that one group with the white sneakers? Oh, the UFO cult, uh, yes. The Hellbop Comet cult. Yeah, they still have their website. It's still in existence. They maintain it, the followers from 1997, I believe. Yeah, and I think for those who were alive at that time, everybody will remember that. And so when somebody uses the term cult or describes an organization with the term cult, it's very, very negative. And so, yeah, new religious movement is definitely anything from the last, say, 200 years. But at the same time, you know, just like you're talking about, all these terms should be used very carefully, and even paganism, you know, because I watched part of the series Vikings, which, uh, you know, goes back, I think, to the 12th century in Denmark and Sweden, and they're interacting with the English, and so, but the Vikings were pagans, according to the Christian English, and that carried so many different value implications in which they were polytheistic, but also if they were essentially valued as humans, if that makes sense. Absolutely, yes. That's why avoiding those terms almost altogether yeah, is, is usually a, a good modus operandi, as they say. I won't say anything more about that, but yes, I agree with that evaluation. Yeah, and that's why it's so important to have free, unjudgmental conversations about religion because word choice is so important. <laughs> And so this leads us to the next question is, you often refer to the philosophical works of Michel Foucault. How is his work a helpful, if not unique, intellectual source for navigating issues of religious difference within postmodern societies? Très bon et merci beaucoup. <laughs> Michel Foucault is one of my favorite intellectuals, especially of the 20th century, because he was so innovative. Just a brief mention of his biography. He started out actually as a graduate student in psychology. But then as a doctoral student in psychology, he was studying the history of the birth of modern psychology, and he gradually shifted to becoming more of first a historian and then a philosophical historian. His genius is really looking at the structures that create thought and then how thought itself can then reshape the structures. He has been called a post-structuralist in that philosophical school. He rejected that exact term. I believe he passed away in 1984. But what he does is he looks at, say, like the birth of modern medicine. How did modern medicine become an empirical discipline that you could actually study data and you know, try to separate it from earlier views, you know, attached to philosophy of language, et cetera. And so he has this wonderful book called The Birth of the Clinic that looks at how mid-1800s, we moved away from leeches and bloodletting to, we're going to study this organ, and we're going to see this organ in isolation. How does it affect other organs in isolation? So 
as a doctoral student in psychology, Foucault was able to see, oh, okay, thoughts also are accompanied by structures. So say, how do you have the birth of the whole medical establishment, the birth of modern prisons from the earlier medieval and Renaissance, more emphasis on corporal uh, punishment. So in terms of applying his insights to religious studies, I think it's important to look at, say, technological advances. How has each technological advance reshaped not just the form in which religious belief is held, but also the content. So I think the very first major one, obviously, would be Martin Luther, that uh, why did Martin Luther succeed as a reformer within the Christian tradition, but separate from the Catholic Church, largely because of the invention of the printing press, that although there were other contemporaries of Luther who were saying very similar things about reforming the Catholic Church, he had the advantage of being able to publish uh, tracts, you know, treatises that he could mass produce and also uh, produce in uh, the vernacular. So he could produce it in just ordinary, common, everyday German that within his context, uh, the ordinary people could read, uh, including even translating the Christian scriptures into German as opposed to Latin. So I think that Foucault is especially, especially important because as we look at how structures whether it's the invention of the printing press or the invention of the modern clinic, how those reshape not just how we believe, but what we believe. I think that that's really the key insight that Foucault brings to a study of religion per se. And those are all wonderful. And I'm really glad you brought up Martin Luther, because at the same time, the printing press was really taking off. And today we really take for granted paper, books, being able to see really just pretty much anything. And I'm not even talking about the internet. And so being able to read the Bible, and especially in German, and then for Martin Luther's ideas and his reformist ideas to spread was so revolutionary at the time that, of course, it unfortunately started about 100 years, 100 plus years of just horrible conflict in Europe. But that kind of technological advance is also very important, and it really helps put in context where people are and where they want to go. Does that make sense? That's an excellent question. And I refrain from mentioning the internet for a couple different reasons. One, because I think that we're actually in a period of transition where we're not fully aware of how the internet will reshape the content and not just the methodology in which we're thinking. I think once we get two or three generations who are so used to being instantly plugged in, it's really going to reshape our neural pathways in ways very similar to learning a foreign language, but the foreign language is being online and connected all the time. So one thought I had was actually that most recently there was a Catholic saint to be beatified, not officially made a saint yet, who was the very first millennial saint. And he uh, was an Italian teenager, died at age 15, but just very devout as a child. And so on his own, he invented his own website, how to present uh, the Catholic Church uh, within his context on the Internet. And now um, I, th I think he's moved closer to becoming actually named as a saint, the very first millennial saint. And so... He's, you know, part of that earliest adopter generation. I think I'm an early adopter for someone who's, you know, 49 years old and, and the X generation, as they say, that I think we're really going to see a change in not just the expression of religious belief, but the actual content once we get this full paradigm shift that we're really in the middle of. We might be past the crescendo of it, but I think once we get two or three generations who've been fully 
immersed as uh, digital natives, as they say, then uh, we're going to see some revolutionary changes. I believe we're seeing it right now as well. And that's a really, really great comment on that. You know, and, and it really makes me think about back during Martin Luther's time, the ones who could read were the educated, the nobility, and plus the priests. And the average person really couldn't read at that time. And so by having books and for the average person who could read to be able to then read the Bible really opened up new opportunities in a culture that hadn't had that opportunity before, because at that point, the word of God came through the Catholic Church, that which then went to the people. And so like you were talking about with the internet, it's interesting where literacy rates today are pretty much universal. And so the internet, you're literally able to find pretty much anything you want. So if you want to read the Bible, it's there. But then at the same time, I'm curious to see if it also somewhat fragments into people focusing on just certain elements of the Bible and just kind of focusing on that. And then other people who take a very holistic point of religion and then kind of study everything. So kind of two camps, of course, there's always a middle where one side is like studying everything and even kind of like religious studies. And the other side is really just focusing on what they are really focused on going into like the more sect version of a faith, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. The self-selection aspect of the internet, especially, I think is going to produce an increasing diversity and diversity within diversity of viewpoints. And so I think that ultimately there, there will be dominant groups. So you might have sort of a general, say, evangelical Protestantism that might not necessarily be growing, but it's a general blanket. But within that, you're going to have a lot of diversity. Uh, I think the publication of the Da Vinci Code, famous Dan Brown novel, um, I think it's become, you know, a number of movies as well, that I think that's been inculcated into what were earlier very traditional Protestant beliefs that now you might have some very interesting offshoots that would be much more within the sect category, but say within, you know, your ordinary Baptist or Methodist church, individual members might actually believe, you know, some quite interesting new things. And I think it's going to be that self-selection aspect that's just intrinsic to the internet and the growth of media. And I'm really glad you mentioned the self-selection because you're able to explain it much better than I could. So I apologize. But one of the great things and also one of the dangers of the internet is that if you self-select into like a certain aspect of say the Bible, you can then find one person in every town in the country. And then that group suddenly becomes large where if you're just by yourself in your town and you're just focusing on say one aspect of the Bible, it's just you. But then again, through the internet, you can really find that community, which can be extraordinarily liberating and it can give you that communal aspect, that community health. But at the same time, it could also promote and prompt negative behaviors that are detrimental to one's own personal health. So it's a really great comment on that, Rob. Thank you very much, Jordan. Yeah, absolutely. I think a healthy interplay between a connection to a concrete local community and also use of the media, social media, internet, and having an interplay, I think that's really essential that one can have groups that are, say, too closed off. There's not very many of them, you know, mostly more earlier 1800s Amish but they seem to be functioning quite well, you know, just, you know, they're, they're against technology per se. But I think 
Yes, you could definitely be sort of very atomized and only connected to the people, say, halfway across the world who believe your exact version of whatever it is. So, yeah, a healthy interaction between local community and then use of social media. I think that's probably healthiest uh, holistically for each individual and community yeah, within whatever religious tradition that they're in. Perfect. And today we're speaking with Robert King, and we'll be right back after a short break. At American Public University, we believe that higher education can unlock higher purpose. So we offer 200 modern programs for those who want to make a difference. And we believe education must adapt to students' needs. That's why we've made it accessible through online classes and flexible with monthly program starts. American Public University, within reach, without limits. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. And we're back with Robert King. Does the question of your own religious affiliation ever arise in the classroom? And how do you handle such questions from students? How does your own religious belief systems impact your teaching? Thank you very much, Jorn. I'll start with the first question. Uh, I wanted to start with the second question, but let me start with the first question. I would say, for the most part, most students do not ask and do not even know what my own religious affiliation is. And if I'm doing that consistently, I've now been teaching religious studies since 2005, then I know that I'm doing my job. Occasionally, I would say one out of 2,000 students will actually ask me, so Professor King, what do you believe? And I'm so floored in a good way when they ask me that, I go, oh, well, thank you for asking. I'm glad that you're asking that you don't know. It means I'm presenting the material objectively or as objectively as I can. So I would say, how does my own religious belief system impact your teaching? As a Catholic, the category of the natural law, I do firmly believe uh, not in a scientifically positivistic way, which would just limit everything to what can only be seen or proven. I think that there's some things that, according to science, we're just now on the cusp of describing, according to modern physics. But I would say that the natural law in its various forms, whether philosophical, going back to Aristotle, the Catholic appropriation of that, I would say Islamic, Buddhist understandings of nature as well, would all view an intrinsic order to the natural world. Now we can debate, okay, should we describe this mathematically? Should we describe this chemically? How do we describe nature? But I would say believing that, yes, there is an intrinsic order to the natural world. And also viewing the world here, I will say that my own perspective is not pantheistic that divinity rest within nature, but that divinity is somehow separate from nature. So that nature is somehow on its own. I wouldn't necessarily say completely on its own. Uh, the 1700s, you know, founding of the United States, you know, the, the deist philosophical school that God is just a clockmaker and we just, he sort of lets nature go on its own. I don't necessarily believe that, but I would say my own belief system as firmly within the natural law camp would then impact my ability to teach according to a number of different ancillary disciplines. So sometimes if the subject matter warrants it, I'll, I'll say, okay, let's look at this from a sociology of religions perspective. Okay, let's look at this from an anthropological or ethnographic uh, lens. And then occasionally, okay, let's look at this more from you know a, a history of philosophy uh, perspective, how philosophical trends shifted the way we view this material. But uh, yeah, I would definitely say 
broadly construed within the natural law tradition, which ironically enough is uh, you know transcendent to many of the different uh, world religions, uh, which you know would be more on the um, theistic side as opposed to pantheistic. So nature is separate from divinity, and therefore we can study it, and uh, it opens up a lot of room to interact and learn from other religious traditions. And that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing and being able to learn from other religions and cultural aspects of religion, I think is very important in today's world. We interact with the world and well, there's no way of getting away from that. And it's not like the olden days when say the French would interact with the English and then they'd have some dealings with the Italians and then they would know about the Arabs and all the empires of Islam. And then there was China way over there, but you would never interact with that because you could only travel based on walking or ship or pony. And so today we literally have to interact with the world and being able to learn from other people. It doesn't mean that you're throwing out everything you know or your own cultural heritage, but you're just learning from other people. And it reminded me when I used to teach in the classroom, I used to really love not giving anything away so students wouldn't know my political affiliation. And I'd also keep whatever my religious affiliation was under wraps, because at, at the end of the day, I wanted them to guess, because just like you said, I don't want to inadvertently influence them. And do you find that it's easy to inadvertently influence students? And when I'm talking students, I'm talking about adult students in higher education. Is it easy to inadvertently influence students, especially theologically? Absolutely, Jordan. And here, I think that making sure that the presentation of the materials is as broad as is possible within a single course, that it's typologically presented in a way that's not determining what the outcome is prior to even presenting the material. So like I mentioned, you know, the use of the term sect. If one begins with the term, then suddenly any content presented after that would put it in that sect group. So really looking at any data from the ground up. So whether it's grounded theory or ethnographic, all the different schools within qualitative research, I think that that's essential to avoid inadvertently slipping in one's political views or religious views. Ironically enough, I've actually found it's, especially in today's climate, less about specific religious beliefs, but I I really have found a, a much heavier emphasis upon one's political affiliations, and it becomes sort of a yes or no, or, you know, very binary, which reduces everything down to, you know, did you vote Democrat or Republican in, in our setting, which I think it's very, very essential to not do that. And, and the way to get around that is to just start with the data itself and allow the data to create its own categories. So that it's the best way. I think it's not necessarily completely impossible, but I think it's very, very difficult for any faculty member to not allow his or her views to slip in when teaching. So, But the best thing is to use qualitative methods like grounded theory or ethnographic research where you allow the categories to arise from the data rather than starting with the categories. Excellent. And to me, this perspective gives places like APU, AMU here at APUS kind of an advantage. I know that I'm making a qualitative statement there, but we're not pushing anything on anybody, but we really want to expose students to the wide variety of different thoughts out there and then let them make their own decisions. And that's one of the great things about the contemporary world is that there's so many things out there that it's really about making your own decision. 
And that really leads us to the last question. You recently gave a conference presentation at the Florida Theological Librarians Conference at St. Leo's University. What role do librarians and class materials staff play in helping to ensure more objective presentations of religious subject matter, whether traditional world religions or new religious movements? Jordan, thank you very much. And I thank all the different universities here in Florida that promote excellence in scholarship across the board, of which, uh, since I teach religious studies, uh, the Florida Theological Librarians Conference would be the primary aspect of that. I found that librarians and class material staff as they are talking more directly with faculty members, program directors like yourself, course designers, course revisors, and having that ongoing dialogue and community of practice, then the materials become much more robust, much more diversified, and I think much more representative of the entire span of what we can teach as any given faculty member or institution, then also much more objective. So one example, um, say, I don't know, it was about a decade ago or so, I was doing some research on a very uh, little known civil war in Mexico, uh, La Cristiada. It was a time of upheaval in Mexico where it was kind of a toned down version of the Bolshevik revolution in Russia. So Mexico was on the verge of becoming some form of, you know, Marxist communist society. And it was a bloody civil war that to this day is actually somewhat repressed. Uh, Mexico, they don't like to talk about this history. It's a little bit embarrassing that all this happened. But if you do the research, it's all there. I watched this movie, a great movie with uh, Peter O'Toole and uh, Eva Longoria called uh, For Greater Glory. Uh, it's all about you know, this very you know lesser known time in Mexican history. And it was, I think, the most expensive movie ever made in Mexico within you know the Mexican context. And as I was doing this research uh, to do a conference presentation on just, you know, religious historiography, how do you tell a story that's been submerged under you know, layers and layers of 20th century history? I reached out to uh, a good friend, Phil O'Neill, the senior uh, reference librarian at Barry University, uh, Miami Shores. And although I was not able to use the voluminous resources that he sent me, I think it was about 13 to 16 books, all written in Spanish, never actually translated into English, which is why we don't really know much about this conflict in Mexican history. Although I wasn't able to use all of that material, it greatly transformed my vision to see what is possible and what is out there. I had one other example way back when I was a PhD student at the University of Notre Dame. I did a paper in a St. Augustine course on use of medical terminology in St. Augustine, I said, okay, this is very frequent attestation. I was just giving kind of a rhetorical analysis of the text and just pointing towards perhaps, you know, some influence by Hippocratic sources. And I left it at that. It was just your standard PhD seminar, 10 to 15 page paper. But then afterwards, although the professor was quite enamored by it, he thought, okay, this is very interesting. You know, I didn't have the time to do that. You know, that's a whole dissertation. It wasn't until 2008, I was doing an open search and I found that someone had done that exact dissertation from like the, I guess it was the University of British Columbia on St. Augustine's interactions with Hippocratic medical theorists and how it really was fully present within St. Augustine 
per se, much more so than any of the uh, Latin-speaking early church bishops and theologians of the time. So I think that's what's really exciting, although I'd say 80% at least of what we might receive from speaking with librarians and class material staff, we might not actually be able to use. It actually does expand our vision so that it might even result in you know new courses or new programs of study. So I know that here at APUS, we're about to start some revised, not just courses, but also new programs of study. And I think that that's what's really exciting about talking with the librarians and the class material staff, that it just opens up entire new worlds to us that we would really not know even existed. And that's true. Um, one of the, of course, great benefits of having libraries and online libraries is just the access to things. And especially with libraries today, they can acquire different books and different publications. And so literally the world is at your fingertips. And that's not like an internet thing, but it's really because there's certain information that are housed in databases that actually are not available just out on the internet. And so having access to a university library really gives you that access to to scholarly writing or scholarly and academic. And when I say scholarly and, and academic, that could also include many, many different things, including theological writings. Is there anything that you've discovered recently via the library that has really surprised you? That's an excellent question. I would say that what has most surprised me is the ability to very quickly collate not necessarily the highest level of references, I would say the highest overall quality, because obviously we want to have the best, the most latest, and I try to stay completely up to date. You know, I read many different journals, I read book reviews, but sometimes there's a little bit of a publishing lag time. So a book might come out in 2003, it's reviewed 2005, and then it becomes sort of part of the mainstream by 2007. So there is a little bit of a lag time with that. But I would say that overall, being able to make sure that we're within that quadrant, I would say, of you know, the top 10, 15 percent of scholarship, that that's what's been most exciting. We always want to strive for perfection. I guess uh, Protestant reformer John Wesley said, we're always going on to perfection. Uh, he had a very specific, specific meaning uh, about that. But I think that just raising the overall quality so that everything is top tier and then, you know, we try to stay up to date and the librarians, they're going to know much more what's out there. They will know that most recent Oxford University Press book published on, you know, fourth century Trinitarian development or something like that, that we might not know, even if we stay completely plugged in, they're going to know much more than, than we will. And I think that that's, yeah, what's really exciting is it keeps the overall class materials offerings at the highest tier. Excellent. And I completely agree. And at this point, had a great conversation. Thank you, Rob, for um, really talking about some interesting and important topics. Uh, any final words? Jordan, I would just say that as we are going through this transformation and perception, as Foucault would note, due to the internet, that like you do as a father, really, if we could pay attention to how our children and then you know our adult students passing it on to their children, how they're learning to make judgments that are fair, critical, as unbiased as possible. And I think that's going to be a little bit countercultural uh, in, you know, in terms of inculcating skills that will be able to read whatever the media is saying and do so in a way that is fair-minded, not conspiratorial, not you know, um, often left field, but 
but also just not taking everything you know, at face value either. So I think it's going to be a period of transition that we're going to have to pass on to our, our children, our children's children, to learn how to use this new technology that's really reshaped our uh, cognitive wiring. And it'll be fully felt, I think, by the time our children are, are raising their children. So I think that as we can pass that on to be able to think critically uh, in a way that is rigorous, but not, not often left field, as they say. Excellent. And what you said is absolutely wonderful. And I can't really add to that because it was perfect. So I'd really like to thank you, Rob, for a great conversation today. And of course, today we are talking to Rob King, Religion Faculty in the School of Arts, Humanities, and Education. My name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and we are talking about teaching religion at secular institutions. For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU, American Public University.